Dean Bible Ministries presents the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Robert Dean, pastor of West Houston Bible Church. These and other Bible lessons are available from www.deanbible.org. Now let's listen to our lesson from God's Word, the Bible. This is the record that God has given to us, eternal life, and this life is in His Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. He who believes on Him is not condemned, but he who believeth not is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. For there is no other name under heaven given among men, whereby we must be saved. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height or depth, nor any other created thing is able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. For of him and through him and to him are all things, to whom be the glory forever. Amen. Before we begin our study this morning, we need to go before the Lord in prayer. Opportunity for us to make sure that we are focused on our study this morning, ready to uh, focus on the Word, to concentrate, to let the distractions of the day's activities and the past week's uh, events and the coming week's plans be removed from, the, from our thinking so that we can focus just on God and His Word and what He has to teach us today because it is through the Word of God and the ministry of the Spirit of God that God takes that which we study and uses the Word as it is stored in our soul to change our thinking and advance us spiritually. And through that dynamic, He produces in us spiritual growth. So we always take a few moments of silent prayer to give each one the opportunity to use 1 John 1, 9 if necessary to make sure we're in fellowship and that we are in right relationship with God the Holy Spirit who is our guide and teacher in the spiritual life. So let's bow our heads together in prayer, and I will uh, open in prayer after a few moments of silent prayer. Father, one of the most significant evidences of the fact that you, the God of Israel, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God who has revealed himself uniquely in the 66 books of our Bible, is who you claim to be and that you are the God of gods, the King of kings. And Father, we pray that you would uh, recognize that as we come together today, we focus our attention upon your word, realizing that, that as we study... God, the Holy Spirit, takes the things in your word, applies them to our lives, stores them in our soul, so that they can be recalled for application as we go forward. As we look at your word, we see that you have declared the end from the beginning, and this evidence strengthens our faith, our confidence in who you are and what you have done in, in history. Father, I pray that as we study today, that as we look at these things, we might not say, well, that's just something that happens off in the undetermined future at some point, but that there are principles, there are patterns that are here that help us to understand 
what is going on in the world today. And, and in fact, they say something to each of us in terms of our own ability to be uh, deceived or distracted away from the truth of your word. So, Father, we pray that you'd guide and direct our thinking today. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Open your Bibles with me to Daniel chapter 11. Our study begins in Daniel 11.35, but lest we have forgotten the context, it's important to have a little bit of review. We've been looking and studying the first of the seal judgments. There are seven seal judgments described in the book of Revelation that give us a a picture of how God will bring judgment upon the earth during the period known as the tribulation. The seal judgments transpired during the first of the three and a, first part of the tribulation, three and a half years. We read in Revelation six one, I saw when the Lamb broke one of the seven seals, I heard one of the four living creatures saying is with the voice of thunder, and I looked and behold a white horse. He who sat on it had a bow, and a crown was given to him, and he went out conquering and to conquer. The first seal judgment is still our subject. It is represents God's allowing one who we call the Antichrist to rise to power through the conquest of other nations. Either done, It's either done diplomatically, it's done through alliances, or it's done militarily. But in the, at the beginning of the tribulation, he has brought together a kingdom, an empire that allows him to uh, rule over what will become a, a global hegemony. And this is described in various passages in Scripture that by the midpoint of the tribulation, uh, he has a level of world dominance that is unsurpassed unprecedented in history. Background for this that we're looking at comes out of key passages in Daniel, and so we've been addressing the question of who is the Antichrist and what will he do. Now, I want to start with the question I'll ask and answer at the end. But something I want you to think about as we go through this is the question related to why we need to know this. I mean, let's face it, the Antichrist isn't going to show up in our lifetime. We won't see him. We won't know who he is. He's not identified until after uh, the rapture occurs. So why is this so important? Well, first of all, God's word says that everything is given to us, and it's profitable for doctrine, for proof, for correction, and for instruction in righteousness, that all of the scriptures are breathed out by God. So there's a lot in scripture related to the Antichrist. Now, why do you think the Holy Spirit wants you to know about the Antichrist? And what can you and I learn about the Antichrist, his rise to power, the things that he is going to attempt to do that should help shape the way we think about uh, the events in our world, the events in our lives, so that uh, following the principle of Romans 12, too, that we are not being conformed to the thinking of the world, which we must remember the world is Satan's system of thinking, It is out of the world system that the Antichrist will come in terms of his his framework of thinking, his uh, political platform, his uh, programs, his agenda, the shape of his kingdom, all is consistent with 
the world system. So that is one thing that is in place, and we are uh, challenged in, Revel- in Romans 12:2 to not be conformed to the thinking of the world, but be transformed by the renewing of our minds. So we need to be thinking about this question as we go through this. Why do you think that the Holy Spirit recorded these prophecies, 2 Thessalonians 2, Daniel 11, all the other passages that we've gone through that relate to this coming, uh, this coming king? Why is it, what are some of the things that we learn, patterns, principles that relate to our developing critical thinking skills about things that are going on today. So keep that floating, that question floating around in the back of your mind as we look at these uh, particular details. I'm not going to review the first four principles that we've covered due to time, and we have reviewed those the past uh, three or four weeks as we've been looking at this. The fifth principle was that the Antichrist is going to be the head of a confederation of Western powers related to what we call the revived Roman Empire, and this will be during the tribulation period. In Daniel chapter 2, there is an image that Nebuchadnezzar sees in a dream. He doesn't know what it means, so he goes out and he asks all of his soothsayers and astrologers and magicians to not only tell him the not only interpret the dream, but tell him what it was in the first place. He wants to make sure that they're not just uh, going to make some things up. So to test them, they have to tell him the dream. Well, of course, nobody can do that, and the punishment for failure is going to be death. And finally, Daniel steps forward, and Daniel identifies the different parts of the statue as different kingdoms that will rise and fall in history. But if you notice, they are all in the shape of a man. This is the kingdom of man as man likes to think of himself. That is why it's pictured here as, as a man. And it is the kingdom of man as man attempts to establish his rule and reign over his destiny over against God. It is the ultimate outworking of human arrogance. The gold head represented Babylon. The silver chest represent, represented the Media Persian Empire. The brass uh, abdomen represented the kingdom of Greece. The iron legs represented the Roman Empire. And I have its closure in 1453 because that is when uh, uh, Constantinople fell on May the 30th, 1453. This is when the eastern half of the Roman Empire came to an end. The western half had ended about a 1,000 years earlier. And then the lower legs and feet were a combination of iron and clay, indicating that the final form of the kingdom of man would include a mixture of elements from the Roman Empire and uh, plus weaker elements as indicated by the clay, the ten toes, are picked up again in the next chapter we looked at, Daniel 7, uh, ten-nation confederacy. There are ten kings there, and then there's one. There's the ten horns represented the final beast. One horn comes up from amongst them and takes control over them. So this is the Antichrist, the little horn, who seizes control over the ten-nation confederacy. In that chapter, the kingdom of man is represented in its bestial characteristic, that man who is totally depraved is always prone towards evil, no matter how good and wonderful 
his intentions may be. Ultimately, because of sin and corruption, it always uh, deteriorates. So, in contrast to the Daniel 2 image that presents the kingdom of man as man likes to think of it, Daniel 7 portrays the kingdom of man in its opposition to God. And we have four beasts that arise. The uh, lion represents Babylon, the bear, the media Persian empire, uh, the leopard, the four-headed leopard, Greece, and its subsequent four divisions after the death of Alexander, and then the final uh, beast that is so horrendous, the fourth beast, different from all of the others, that is a depiction of the power of Rome and then the uh, power of the Antichrist's kingdom. Daniel 7.19 pictures him as dreadful with teeth of iron, nails of bronze. And the fourth beast is described in Daniel 7.23 as a fourth kingdom on the earth which is different from all the other kingdoms and it shall devour the whole earth, trample it, and break it into pieces. This is just one of numerous passages that indicates a true uh, global international power that comes to the Antichrist. Then we looked at Daniel chapter 9. That told us that the Antichrist comes from the people is the, the prince who is to come. The people of the prince who is to come will destroy the city and the sanctuary. That occurred in AD 70 when the temple was destroyed, when the Romans under Titus uh, defeated the Jews, captured Jerusalem, destroyed the temple, and the uh, second temple period ended in that temple, the Herodian temple, was completely destroyed. But it identifies the Antichrist as the people, as the prince who is to come. And so we know that, again, there's that connection to Rome and the old Roman Empire. Last time I pointed out that when we come to Daniel chapter 11, we have to remember that as Old Testament prophets looked at the future, they only saw some key events. There were things that they didn't see, and often this is pictured by a prophet looking across a mountain range. You see certain peaks, but you don't necessarily see, because of your perspective, your distance, that there may be uh, hundreds of miles, many different events between the mountain tops that you can see. And so the prophets saw key events such as the birth of Jesus, the crucifixion of our Lord, the rise of the Antichrist, a lot of events related to that seven-year period, Daniel's 70th week, the time of Jacob's trouble, the return, the second advent of the Messiah, the establishment of Messiah's kingdom. But in many places, especially with regard to both the first coming and the second coming of Jesus, they didn't realize that they were separated. They didn't understand that the cross would come at least 2,000 years before the crown. And, and later on and during the time of Christ, they even forgot that the cross had to come before the crown because you don't have a systematic uh, explanation of these things in the Old Testament. They are all there uh, for different reasons. Now, as we... Uh, get have gone into our particular study. We've come to Daniel 11, uh, verse 36. And we began our study here last time, but just so we pick up our thought flow. There is a shift of personage between the first 35 verses of Daniel 11 
and the figure that comes to the forefront in verse 36. The first 35 verses are history. Now, they were prophecy when they were written, but they were fulfilled in the person of Antiochus IV called Antiochus Epiphanes, who was one of the rulers in the Seleucid Empire. This was one of the four empires that, were, that came out of the Greek Empire. And when Alexander died, his kingdom was uh, split up between four of his generals, Lysimachus, Cassiodorus, Seleucus, and Ptolemy. Ptolemies went to Egypt. The Seleucids took over the area of uh, Persia and Syria. They vied over control of the area that we refer to as Israel or Palestine. And for much of the first part of that period, uh, the area was under the uh, authority of the Ptolemies in Egypt. And then with the rise of uh, Antiochus the Great, Antiochus the Third the Seleucids took over. And then when Antiochus IV came to power, he is pictured as the most evil, wicked king in relation to Israel. And he uh, instigated a number of policies that were both anti-Semitic and anti-God. In fact, he eventually uh, desecrated the temple as a sign of what the Antichrist would do in the, in the end times, and he had a pig sacrificed uh, on the altar and the blood of a pig uh, applied to the temple, which, of course, uh, fouled the temple in violation uh, of the law. But he set himself up uh, as a god to be worshipped. All of this is a backdrop for the first 35 verses. But a shift occurs between 35 and 36. As I pointed out several examples last time, this is not unusual in prophetic passages for there to be a time gap between elements in the passage. We see the same thing with Daniel's 70th week, that you have the first 69 weeks or a combination of 7 plus 62, and then it's after the 69th week that the Messiah is cut off, and there's a clear break in time and an interlude. And then it's the 70th week. So between the 69th and the 70th week, the passage shows a clear uh, time break. We don't know how long that is. We're still in that uh, parenthesis. We're still in that uh, time period. And so we have the rise sometime in the future of this king who will do according to his will. So he is often referred to as the willful king, but this is the Antichrist. This is the one that is the uh, prince who will come, the one who will uh, enter into a peace treaty with Israel that will give them a sense of stability. This is the one who will finally bring about that um, hope that is that the hope of every political leader for the last 50 or 60 years that they'll be the one to resolve the Middle East crisis. And uh, so we always have that. And, and th this seems to be, no matter who they are when they go into the White House, it always seems that they that they become enamored with this vision that they can somehow uh, get the Palestinians and the Israelis and Hamas and Hezbollah and everybody else to sit down and just, um, you know, throw their arms around each other and kiss on the cheek and make up. 
and this isn't going to happen. But but everyone, Republican, Democrat, it doesn't matter. Everybody gets sucked into this vision, some uh, more so than others. It's part of a messianic complex. It's part of a trend that we'll see in the church age that mirrors or reflects what will finally happen in the end times. There are a lot of trends in the church age that are similar to what what happens in the uh, tribulation period. And that's part of the answer to the question that I'm having you think through. It's why the Holy Spirit tells us these things is because when we get to that end time period in the tribulation, though we won't be here, it is a culmination of thought patterns and philosophies and deceptions and distortions that are present in the church age. And as we come to identify these in the more extreme form that they take in the end time tribulation, then it gives us uh, critical thinking ability. It gives us uh, patterns, ideas, concepts, categories that we can then use to evaluate present events, present trends, and it gives us an ability to look at history today from a vantage point that you will never get watching Fox News or CNN or ABC or NBC or listening to Rush Limbaugh or anybody else that's out there because they don't come to these issues from a biblical vantage point. There's always something missing. Some of them may be a little closer to truth than others, but because they miss certain key elements, especially in relation to God's plan for Israel, they just can't quite get it right. And this is going to affect, of course, decision and policy making for heads of state, whether it's the European powers or Arab powers or the United States. They always are missing something because they so often get influenced by people who have bought into some miscommunication uh, of the scriptures, usually some sort of historicist or other kind of interpretation. But all of this takes place in the future. And what we've seen in our study so far is that there are two key figures that come up in the end time of the tribulation. One is a political leader called the first beast in Revelation, and the other is a religious leader who is identified as the second beast in the tribulation period. Jesus said that there would be both false messiahs and false prophets that would arise, and he's talking in that passage primarily within the context of the seven-year tribulation period. Just because we can go out in the church age and say, well, there's all kinds of false messiahs and false prophets doesn't mean that Jesus is talking about the church age in those passages. It's just that when it gets to the period of the tribulation, uh, whatever you've seen so far is just, uh, th- those are just the little leaguers in training for the kind of claims that are going to be made uh, when we get into the uh, into Daniel's 70th week itself. The, the uh, Antichrist is identified as the willful king, and this concept of will and volition takes us back to the initial claims of Satan in his fall in Isaiah chapter 14, where he talks about the what he will do. He will... Uh, elevate himself above the stars of God. He will elevate himself above the clouds. He's going to elevate himself ultimately about 
above God. Those five I wills expressed there indicate his statement, his expression of his desire to set himself up above the authority of God and to be worshipped as God. And the Antichrist, this end-time leader, is the... He is the culmination of Satan's attempt in human history to establish his kingdom on earth, a kingdom of man, and he is going to personally indwell and empower uh, the Antichrist to give him the abilities to bring in uh, what Satan hopes will be the kingdom of peace and prosperity and happiness and solve all the problems uh, of humanity because that's his goal. His goal isn't to promote war and violence and and uh, disease and all of these other things because that that that's not uh much uh that doesn't bring much pleasure or happiness to man. Uh Satan's goal is to bring in a perfect world order and a perfect world order that doesn't include these things. And the fact is he can't quite do it because he has to deal with about 4 billion people on the planet who are competing with him to be God. And uh, he just didn't realize when he tempted uh, Eve with the statement that if you eat from this fruit, you can be like God, that he was creating his own competition. And now he has a whole lot more competition than just one or, one or two. And so the end-time ruler is called the willful king because he will embody that same willfulness, that autonomous willfulness that Satan had to set himself up as the ultimate authority, the ultimate determiner of reality, the one who will bring in peace, prosperity, and happiness uh, to man. And this is a parallel passage for this is 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse, verse 7, for the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. It is lawlessness, not because the Antichrist is an anarchist, but because it is a rebellion against the law of God, the rule of God over his uh, creation. And um, because of that, he is the, the willful king. Now, as we get into our particular passage, I want you to look at verse uh, 36. Uh, then the king will do as he pleases, and he will exalt and magnify himself above every god. Uh, New King James says the king shall do according to his own will. That is the idea, using New American Standard up on the screen. The king will do as he wills. That's the idea. He sets up his will as the ultimate authority. He will uh, magnify himself above every god. There are those who... Uh, claim that he will come out of Islam or that he will come out of uh, some other uh, religious system or that he will uh, even uh, exalt uh, a worship of Satan. No, he is, uh, he is going to magnify himself above every god. Uh, he is not going to be promoting Allah. He's not going to be pr- promoting Krishna. He is not going to be promoting uh, the Mormon God, and it's, the Mormon God is not the God of the Bible. The Mormon Jesus isn't the Jesus of the Bible. I just thought I'd make that side note in case you didn't realize that. But he is not going to be promoting any of those gods. He's going to be magnifying himself above every god. So as we look at our passage, we saw as we saw last time, he sets himself up ultimately to be worshipped as God. Second thing we see in this passage is that he will speak monstrous things 
about the God of gods. Now, that word translated monstrous could be translated a couple of different ways. One way is he was going to uh, make wondrous claims. Uh, the word that is translated monstrous is a word whose root word is used in Scripture as uh, miracles. And so it's very likely that he's going to make these exorbitant claims, but then he backs them up with miracles. He backs them up with uh, various uh, signs and wonders that give credence to his claims. These will be legitimate miracles. Second Thess 2, 9 and 10, that is the one who is coming is in accord with the activity of Satan with all power and signs and false wonders. They are false not because they are uh, fraudulent, not because he claims to heal people and it was just some sort of sleight of hand. They are false because they do not come from God. Now, a lot of people have trouble with that. But if you go back to Deuteronomy chapter 13, where God warns, gives one of the first tests in the, one of two tests in the Mosaic law regarding identification of a true prophet, God says, even if one comes among you and performs signs and wonders and people are healed, I mean, it's a recognition that no matter how miraculous or legitimate the miracles appear to be, don't believe it. And that that is a test for people to, are they going to trust the empirical evidence of these miracles? Are they going to trust what the Word of God says? Are they going to show their love of God by trusting His Word over against these miracles? So Satan is going to empower the Antichrist to perform certain miracles. And we're told that in verse 37, that or 36, backing up, that he will prosper until the indignation is finished. So God is going to allow him to continue to uh, see a measure of success and victory until it all collapses in on him. God is going to, uh, as he has removed the restrainer, which is the Holy Spirit, so he's removed the restrainer, then there he's going to allow the Antichrist to just exploit and do whatever he wants to do, and it will bring about the final end as God has revealed it. Now, I got a couple of questions that were asked of me regarding the, the restrainer. talked about the fact that in 2 Thessalonians uh, chapter 2, we're told that the uh, restrainer is removed prior to the uh, revelation of the Antichrist. And I pointed out that the restrainer there is the Holy Spirit. question was asked of me, well, does that mean that the Holy Spirit leaves at the end of the tri- at the, uh, with the rapture or at the beginning of the tribulation? The Holy Spirit is removed uh, at the end of the church age at the rapture. And the primary presence of the Holy Spirit today and not, it's not exclusively, but the primary presence is in the indwelling of every believer. When the rapture occurs, the Holy Spirit and his church age ministry ends. The Holy Spirit's role in the church age is distinct from all previous dispensations. The church age began at the day of Pentecost with the first 
baptism by the Holy Spirit. That is a sign of a church-age believer. We are baptized by means of the Holy Spirit and identified with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection. Uh, going along with that, you also have the unique indwelling of God the Holy Spirit in the church age, which is related to the indwelling of Jesus Christ in church age believers. So when the rapture occurs, the present ministry of the Holy Spirit ends and his presence is removed and we there is this dispensational shift that goes back to a time similar to the Old Testament dispensation of, of Israel, because this is, the, remember, the last seven years in God's plan for Israel. And this is also indicated by the tremendous change that will occur at the end of the tribulation when the Lord Jesus Christ returns and establishes his new covenant with Israel. And all those passages we've studied in our Hebrew series that the, the, uh, God promised that he will put his spirit in them. And if they were already indwelt by the spirit, there would be a different terminology. That manifestation of the Spirit in the Millennial Kingdom is going to be greater than the manifestation of the indwelling of the Spirit in believers' life in the church age, but it's, uh, the indwelling is still there. It's just a, has different characteristics. So the point is that, that you lose the significance of that putting the Spirit in you if every one of those tribulation saints already had that it would be expressed somewhat differently. So there is no presence of the Holy Spirit during the tribulation period in terms of sanctification roles and dwelling roles, that that aspect of his ministry and primarily restraining evil. So God just sort of pulls off all restraints and allows man to uh, and Satan to go as far as they can go. Now, this is all motivated by arrogance, so let's summarize some of the things that we see in the scripture about the characteristic of the Antichrist. First of all, he's going to vindicate his message, his methods, and his empire with miracles and signs and wonders. He's going to vindicate his political platform, his organization of his kingdom. Uh, Everything that he does is going to be somehow wrapped in a religious uh, some sort of religious justification. And he is going to validate it through performing miracles and signs and wonders. And so people who don't know the word of God are going to be deceived because they, they have been prepared by trends in the church age to think that if somebody can heal somebody without benefit of surgery, then they must be from God. And we see that today. How many people in various, even groups of Christians, hear some faith healer come along and make certain claims, and they say, well, it's got to be from God. Look what happened. Well, Scripture makes it clear that just because somebody is healed or miracle occurs, that that doesn't necessarily mean the person who does it is from God. There are other factors, other features, and other characteristics. So many people will be deceived and they will just uh, get on the emotional bandwagon for the Antichrist simply because he is able to perform these miracles, and they will think that gives credibility to his uh, position. Second thing that we see, as a pseudo-Messiah, 
He is going to promise the kinds of things that only the Messiah can provide. He will promise solutions to poverty, to health care, to diseases, to natural catastrophes. Just think of the, the things that have happened that we see in our era, we, from, from Katrina to various uh, disasters related to uh, um, earthquakes and hurricanes and tornadoes, and everybody automatically assumes that the government's supposed to come in and make everything right. And that's the kind of mentality that is going to be present in the tribulation period, except to a much greater degree. So you can already see the preparation of that. We no longer emphasize the fact that when uh, bad things happen in life, we go through crises, that it's up to us as individuals to take responsibility and ownership for handling our own lives and solving our problems. We go sit on the street curb somewhere and wait for FEMA to come along and give us a handout. And see, this is completely contrary to the mentality that gave rise to the uh, United States and the American Republic. There's an emphasis on the first divine institution, which is individual responsibility. And that means that there's no guarantees that life is going to always be wonderful and that when tragedy occurs, you have to handle it. Just think about those uh, people who were pioneers who first pushed into uh, what was originally the old Midwest, uh, Tennessee and Kentucky, later on into Arkansas and across the plains. And they didn't have any federal government to go to when they got hit with a storm or a flood or anything else. They just had to figure out how to resolve the problems on the basis of their own resources and their own abilities. There wasn't this sense of entitlement that somehow I'm entitled to a certain lifestyle, a certain kind of house, a certain income, access to, to certain kinds of, of uh, social care. Uh, and that's what has been fostered over the last hundred years. People in America, uh, even those of us who are more conservative than others, have been subtly influenced into this entitlement mentality because that's how our whole culture functions. But that wasn't the way it was over a hundred years ago. Well, it's this kind of thinking that is setting the stage, and now it's becoming a worldwide type of thing. It's international in scope because of the presence of international media, because of the presence of the Internet, because uh, so many in the media talk in these terms that whether you are in Africa or you're in Asia, there is this sense that somehow if a tragedy occurs, then the world has to come and make everything like it was before the tragedy occurred. And I'm not saying that we shouldn't be compassionate and there's not a basis for, for care and sustenance of other people. There is, but it's the way in which it's done. A, a right thing has to be done in a right way and not in a wrong way. And we saw that yesterday, uh, last night at Family Night. Those of you who didn't make it, we watched the film Amazing Grace. And that's something I encourage you to watch if you've never seen it. It's the story of the abolition of slavery as it occurred in uh, the British Empire. And the goal, of course, was the abolition of the slave trade, which that bill was uh, first passed or finally passed, I think, around 1815, 1816. And then the abolition of slavery came in around 1832 through the influence of biblically-based evangelicals, men whose thinking was shaped by a biblical view of man, society, 
Christ, salvation, all these things. They weren't trying to bring in the kingdom of perfect utopia. They were just trying to deal with what it was and is an injustice. And so they had a right, they did a right thing in a right way. And there's a tremendous scene in there where you have Thomas Claxton, who's more of a revolutionary, he's attracted to the thinking of the French Revolution, and he's talking to Wilbur, William Wilberforce, and he's trying to convince him to be a little more radical, to uh, get on the revolutionary bandwagon. In fact, Claxton's getting ready to go to Paris because these great things are happening in Paris uh, with the French Revolution. And he wants uh, Wilberforce to go with him, and Wilberforce says, uh, don't ever talk to me about revolution again. And this is the difference between the kind of thinking that uh, was in Britain, the thinking of Wilberforce, versus Claxton represented the more radical approaches that happened in the United States. And what happens when you use radical approaches that are apart from the Word of God, the arrogance always generates hostile uh, reaction and divisiveness. And that's exactly what happened in the United States. It's a tremendous test case. I've always, I've used it for years. I've always loved it because it shows that theology really makes a difference in how you do what you do. It's not just what you do. And if you do it for, with the wrong methodology, then it's going to create nasty consequences that still go on today. And you look at what happens in England, and even though there's always uh, problems of race and these other things in any culture and differences in, you know, prejudices and things like that, in England never experienced the kind of turmoil as a result of abolition of slavery that happened in America, and it's because uh, in America it was done for the wrong reason. Theology that dominated. Uh, the North had already departed from its biblical base. The real thinkers believed man was per- per- born perfect, society was perfectible, and government should be uh, involved in perfecting it and bringing in the kingdom of God. And what's interesting, if you trace the idea, is that during the 19th century among European liberals, the idea of the kingdom of God being somewhat spiritual gets brought down to earth by the end of the 19th century. It is incorporated within the thinking of the uh, father of the modern social gospel, William Rauschenbusch, who's the father of the modern uh, religious left. And it's the idea that man is to bring in, that part of the role of government is to bring in the kingdom of God. And you read writers in the early 1900s that are talking about the Antichrist, they see the patterns already developing at that time with the rise of Christian socialism. And you get into Europe, and every European country, France, Germany, others, had Christian socialist programs. And so they, were, they combined socialism, which is collectivism, government owns most of the property and dis- distributes and redistributes wealth, and that's always in complete uh, juxtaposition to private ownership of property and, in, and the first divine institution of personal responsibility. And it's interesting to read these writers in the early 1900s because they could be writing about today. And they see that what, it, what happened in terms of the development of these ideas is this merger of socialism with a heavenly kingdom. And amillennialism and postmillennialism, of course, postmillennialism almost died and was uh, virtually paralyzed for 70 years because of the fields of Flanders and all of the violence in World War I. But it came back, but it comes back in a purely secularized form by the post-World War II period, 
and in the West we want to bring in the kingdom, but we no longer talk, at least in a secular sense, of the kingdom of God. We're just going to bring in a perfect society, and we're going to perfect everything and bring in uh, world peace. I didn't say world peace. I said world peace and end hunger and uh, everything else. And this is so messianic, and we have the uh, UN claiming that they're going to uh, end all war and men will beat their uh, swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks and man will make war no more. This is a messianic claim. These are the same kinds of things that the uh, Antichrist is going to do. So he promises solutions to all of these social problems that only the Messiah, only God can provide, and that will only be instituted in the end times. Now, does that mean that Christians should just should ignore social things, social problems? No, it doesn't. But it's the way you do it. Wilberforce and the Clapham group modeled how it's done the right way. But in America, uh, the, because of the uh, so-called evangelicals in the early 18th century that redefined the gospel and thus redefined everything else, that we continue to fight the same problems. But this sets the stage, and now this is an international mentality of bringing in some kind of uh, universal problem, um, universal solution. Third, the Antichrist will not begin as an overt opponent to religions. He wraps himself up in a religious uh, garment to justify what he's doing. He will foster an ecumenical or tolerance-based religious system. You can be Christian as long as you don't uh, get involved in hate speech, as long as you don't uh, say anything negative about the... Uh, uh, homosexuals who are getting married or about those who are uh, living in adultery or those who are living with multiple wives or committing pederasty. I mean, once, once, you, once you knock down this barrier that the Supreme Court, uh, State Supreme Court of California knocked down, that marriage is no longer defined as between a man and a woman, uh, you've crossed the Rubicon. Uh, there's, you, 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 now, how can you say that it's only between one man and one woman. It can be between one woman and one woman, or one woman and three women, or one man and three men, or one man and four women, or one man and five children. I mean, once you change one man and one woman, it can be anything you want it to be. And there's no longer any absolute that you can appeal to to define marriage. And so we see the same kind of thing that will take place in the Antichrist, where you see in the Antichrist kingdom, where you see this changing of laws, the one who wants to come in and reestablish his own rules for living. That's where man is today. We want to make up our own rules and ignore God's rules. And the second divine institution of marriage is a divine institution. And when man starts changing it, it has collateral damage in terms of the destruction of the fabric of a culture. And that's why. Now, when you look at uh, the five divine institutions, that provides your basic foundation for, any, for understanding political trends and why anything's wrong. If you don't have those five things in place, it doesn't matter what the, other, what the politicians claim, what the other issues are. If those five things aren't preserved, it's, the house will fall down on our shoulders 
and destroy us no matter what. It doesn't matter what the secondary issues are. Those divine institutions provide us with the five uh, five most important elements in any decision-making. And what are they? First of all, it's individual responsibility. That's private ownership. Just trace that through. Whenever you listen to any political candidate, just say, what's his ultimate view of private property? If I work for it and I pay for it, do I get to keep it? If I work for it and I get the paycheck, how much of it do I get to keep? The more that goes somewhere else means the less personal responsibility there is and the more it actually belongs uh, to the government. And we'll see this as we go through our passage here that the Antichrist basically takes control and ownership of all land and then starts giving it out to whomever he wants to. But the government owns the land. We have that kind of system here. You, you just pay rent on it every year. You call it property tax or they call it property tax, but that's you don't own the land. You just uh, pay rent for it every year to the government. And this just this is the kind of thing that sets the stage for the future. If you look at the kind of taxation in the Mosaic Law, there was no property tax because they recognize that property tax destroys the ability to accumulate wealth and pass it on as an inheritance to subsequent generations. And the Mosaic Law recognizes that that the personal ownership of property, keeping it, passing it on to the next generation, and the accumulation of wealth is a sign of a successful and healthy society. But we live in a world today when uh, the government wants to own the property. They can take your property through eminent domain. I was up in Connecticut when all that happened. I wasn't very far from New London when all of that went down. And developers wanted to use this land. Well, it had a lot of older homes on it. It was kind of run down. But everybody owned that land. And they wanted to come in and develop it, part of it to go to industry, part of it to go to the city. And they just decided that... Uh, I mean, it wasn't going in and saying, well, the freeway needs to widen, so we need to take a few houses and, and where everybody understood there's a legitimacy there. It was just this purely for the, to increase the tax base for the city of New London, and that was found to be uh, legitimate according to the Supreme Court of, of uh, Connecticut and the United States. Okay. So the Antichrist will not begin as an overt opponent to religion, but will foster an ecumenical economist-based religious system. There's, you, you will be Christians, or anybody who holds to absolute will become a criminal just because they hold to absolutes in morals or ethics. Anyone who dogmatically asserts a different view on marriage, on private ownership of property, on any matter of, of ethics will be outlawed, and hate speech is just a good category that's been developed that can anybody can fall into. Fourth, he's going to have a worldview that is based on evolution. There's no creator God. Everything just happens by chance. So if there's no outside creator that is the source of absolutes, then man can make up his own absolutes, and he can make up his own absolutes. And evolution then becomes... Um, the, the uh, a way of arguing for man moving to his next stage of cultural development. Hitler used social Darwinism in order to justify his uh, persecution of Jews, his anti-Semitism, as well as uh, what he was doing to gypsies or any other 
uh, racial ethnic groups that he didn't like or anyone in certain uh, groups such as homosexuals that he didn't like. He used social Darwinism to justify that. And in his view, the Aryans were the super race and everybody else was an untermension or subhuman. And so if they're not really human, then it's okay to, to treat them uh, as animals. Uh, socialism will be a vital part of his mentality, the idea of collectivism that all wealth and property is ultimately to be controlled and determined by government. Uh, secularism, there being a distinction from traditional Christianity, and he will borrow and redefine traditional religious terms such as kingdom of God, optimism, hope, change, liberty, security, Freedom. These are all words that are loaded with biblical divine viewpoint significance. But we even see, and we've seen for years, politicians use these terms, rip them out of context, and use them to support their own uh, political agenda. But the Antichrist is going to make all these guys look like a bunch of wannabes. Uh, he is going to take it all to a totally new level. Personally, he's going to be very attractive, I think physically, uh, charismatic. Uh, his personality is going to be attractive to uh, very many people. He will be winsome, convincing to many. He will be glib and articulate. He is going to be able to sway the masses to his position, and he will be looked on as the promised Savior who will bring in a utopic kingdom. And lest we leave this out, last but not least, under point six, he will be an angel of light, not of darkness. Second uh, Corinthians uh, 14 talks about Satan and his ministers appear as an angel of light. Uh, they are deceptive, and only those with the truth will be able to see a difference. Let's just go on and wrap up what we're seeing here in uh, Daniel 11:37. He will show no regard for the gods of his fathers. Now, the word here is Elohim. That doesn't mean he's not going to have, he's Jewish and he's not going to have a regard for, for Elohim. There are people who, uh, tried to make this case. Uh, whether it's God or gods, it is that from whatever background he comes, he is going to disregard his own religious heritage. We know from, uh, Revelation that the first beast comes out of the sea that he's a Gentile. If he's Roman, he comes out of Western Europe. He will disregard Christianity. And he said that he will show no regard for the gods of his fathers or for the desire of women. Now, a lot of people, you read that right away, you say, well, the guy's a celibate or uh, he's uh, homosexual. None of that applies. Um, the desire of women is really an interesting phrase that you find in the, um, in the Scripture. Uh, similar phrases are used in uh, 1 Samuel 9.20, uh, Haggai. Uh, 2.7, that word for desire is used in a context related to the desire of Israel. It's a messianic term. And uh, the desire of women, women in Israel hoped that they would be the mother of the Messiah. And what this is saying, it's talking about his rejection of other gods and system. And he says he will show no regard for the gods of his fathers and for the desire of women. In other words, the true Messiah, it's a uh, biblical allusion to, to the Messiah, it's a messianic term, and he will show no regard for any other gods, for he will magnify himself above them all. Verse uh, 38, 
but instead he will honor a God of fortresses. Some have translated this a God of force. That was popular back in the when all the Star Wars movies were coming out. But the idea here behind the word fortress is the idea of a place of safety, security, a fortification, a place of refuge. And this is his emphasis, is that he can provide security for people. People either are going to have security or they're going to have freedom. You cannot have both. Uh, if you want freedom, then that implies a freedom to fail as well as to succeed. What people don't want is the failure, uh, the freedom to fail because that means then that they may lose everything in the latter years of their life because they make a bad decision and then they have to live with it. Uh, so people want security, and people would rather trade freedom for security and liberty for uh, sustenance. That's why uh, some people think that the basic orientation of the fallen heart is socialism. Uh, let somebody else take care of all the responsibilities as long as I have a measure of security. So he will honor a God who provides and offers uh, security. This is a God whom his fathers did not know, once again emphasizing a break with whatever religious past he has, and that he will honor him with gold, silver, costly stones, and treasures. And, of course, he only gets that through uh, taxation. So it's an emphasis here on how he is accumulating wealth to himself as he raises taxes and accumulates property for himself. Verse 39 he will take action against the strongest of fortresses with the help of a foreign god. This is the idea that he will uh, use these, his religion and, of course, the indwelling of Satan to take action against whatever is set up against him. He will give great honor to those who acknowledge him and cause them to rule over the many and will parcel out land for a price. See, he owns all the land. He takes it all for himself, and he gives it out as a ward. So socialism is simply setting the stage for the uh, kind of thing that we have at the end. Uh, Daniel 1140, at the end time, the king of the south will collide with him, and the king of the north will storm against him with chariots. Now, I don't want to get into this section too much because this has to do with the fact that some events that occur at the end of the tribulation period, and I believe that here we see... Uh, something very similar to the Ezekiel 38-39 setup. This occurs at the end time, the second half of the tribulation, when there is a, a southern coalition, specifically Egypt. In context, king of the south is Egypt. King of the north has been Syria. It's very likely it could be uh, northern Syria. It could be Russia, uh, which is the picture you get in Ezekiel 38-39. We'll cover that as we get more into our our passage and our study of Revelation. Now, the last verse I want to look at is Daniel 12.1. At that time, Michael shall stand up, the great prince who stands watch over the sons of your people, and there shall be a time of trouble, such as never was since there was a nation. That's the point, is that at the end, there is this war that is unlike any other war, very different from any other situation or circumstance in history. Now, in closing... Let's go back to the question I asked at the beginning. Why do you think the Holy Spirit wants you to know about these things? One reason is, is because we see the same trends. We see politicians and leaders making and philosophers setting forth the same thought agenda that the 
is must be present for the Antichrist at the end to establish his kingdom. He's not just going to come out by himself. There will be a whole system, a political system, a philosophical system, an economic system that is virtually in place, and he's going to come up within the midst of that. He's not going to be inventing, generating a whole new system when he moves, uh, moves into location. So we see that it prepares us by understanding the trends of today because they mirror what will be going on there. And so it gives us discernment. Another thing that we see here is that apart from the doctrine that you have in your soul, uh, you would be prone to worship the Antichrist just like those people will because that is the basic orientation of the fallen heart. And that should cause us to have great humility. There is, um, as we look at these things in Scripture, we realize that it is so easy for so many to become deceived by those who sound right, look right, have a certain kind of personality. And it's only the Word of God that really gives us the ability to have discernment, to see past the facade and to understand what the real issues are. And that is part of why God the Holy Spirit wants us to know about these things because uh, we can very easily be, be deceived and be led astray just as they will be in the end times. Well, next time we'll come back. We're finishing up our study of this first seal, and we'll come back for the second seal uh, next time with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we thank you for... Uh, this study to see that we need not be distracted by the promises of people that they can do what only Jesus can do. Only Jesus could provide for our salvation because he alone is the God-man, the perfect undiminished deity combined in true humanity. And in that one person who went to the cross and there you poured out upon him all of our sins. We pray that there's anyone here this morning who's unsure of their salvation or uncertain of their eternal destiny that they would Uh, Take this opportunity to make that both sure and certain. Christ died for your sins. He paid for all of them. As we heard in the movie last night in that line from John Newton, I am a great sinner, but Christ is a great Savior. His salvation is for all and covers all. And we all come to him on the same basis, and that is that we have nothing. We bring nothing, but Jesus Christ has provided everything. Father, we pray that you challenge us with the things we've studied today, that we might have greater discernment as we look at the trends of history, the trends of our culture around us. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.